Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Mass Office Hours. My name is Eric Trexler. I am one of the hosts tonight. The other host is Lauren Colenzo-Semple. Lauren, welcome. Thank you for joining me. Thank you so much. I'm a little salty that I was unsuccessful in dethroning you as the, the host, but I will get over it. It was close, and you know we were making contingency plans because it was looking rough there. Um, I was not well with COVID, but I'm back. My voice works again, which is nice. Happy to have a voice. Um, now, I want to thank everyone for joining us. If you like the show and you want to support it, there's many ways you can do it. Like, rate, subscribe, share it with people, leave reviews. All that stuff is super helpful. Uh, did I say tell a friend? Definitely tell a friend. Share it with people. Uh, send them a link to the YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts. We're all over the place. Uh, if you want to support the show and make it good, you can submit a really good question. Uh, you can do that by clicking the link in the show's description right now, or the preferred way is to just join us live and jump right in to the chat as we are recording. Uh, we record every Wednesday night. Before we get started, I want to also mention we have CEUs available at the Mass Research Review. So if you are a personal trainer and you are certified with the NSCA, ACSM, uh, ACE, NASM, if you're not a personal trainer, you don't know what these acronyms are. But if you are a personal trainer or some other certified person who works in fitness and you're certified through one of those four organizations, if you're a Mass subscriber, you get very, very big amounts of CEUs, very bigly CEUs, uh, for a very low price. If, if you're like looking at other ways to get CEUs for, uh, for keeping your certification, a lot of these things will be like conferences or webinars that are like super expensive mass. If you subscribe, the CEUs come free with it. Um, so if you want more information about that, you can learn more at massresearchreview.com. Now let's go ahead and get into some questions here. I want to start out with a good one, a classic question from Ollie. The question is, what are some of your favorite exercises? And in this question, they are capped to three. You got three exercises that you can do for the rest of your life. Lauren, which three are you going with? I think I'm going to do some sort of a lunge or a split squat. Then I'm going like a machine cable row and a machine lateral raise okay machine cable room interesting very nice very machine heavy but that's okay i, I know that uh you've done good work in mass uh defending the machines um in this contentious time where people everyone's anti-technology anti-ai you're you're on the team of the machines uh very interesting well, maybe seven years ago, I would have said barbell squats and deadlifts all day, every day. But um, after injury, after injury, I've uh, departed from my love of those exercises. What about you? Yeah. Well, you know, I'm actually really thrilled right now. I've been, I've put together a good string of workouts for the first time in a long time. Um, finally have been focusing on rehabbing my nerve injury, um, which is in my like abdomen hip area. Now, if you have a nerve injury in your abdomen hip area, you basically can't do anything. Like even just like standing up straight and having any intra-abdominal pressure is an issue. Like when, when I say like, oh, I've got this like hip abdomen thing, people think, oh, so you just can't do like barbell back squats. It's like, I literally can't do incline dumbbell presses. Like my exercise selection is crazy limited for the time being. 
Uh, but I've been stoked. I've, I've, I've been stringing together some really nice workouts. So I'm going to answer this question a little bit differently than normal. I'm going to say based on the things I can do now, which is almost nothing, what would I do? Um, so I would also go, well, no, I wouldn't go with a cable row. I would go with a cable lat pull down. Um, that that's one that's been in my rotation. And when I feel like it, so that this is actually, I'm cheating. If I feel like getting more of a row stimulus, I'll just lean back. So now I get two for one. You can't really do that with a row machine very well, unless you do like a moto row kind of thing. Anyway, uh, give me a lat pull down. Um, and you can switch all sorts of grips, uh, you know, reverse grip, normal grip, uh, neutral grip, all, all sorts of good stuff. Give me a belt squat. Belt squat has changed my life. I've been doing belt squats and I've been doing, um, kind of like a, a sumo deadlift with the belt squat, um, using like a, uh, what would typically be a cable row handle. Um, I was really bummed cause I, I can't even do like hip thrusts to try to train my glutes and my, <laughs> I noticed that like my pants were like falling down if I didn't wear a belt and I was like, Oh God, I don't have an ass anymore. So that was, that was not fun to notice. So I, I was like, I need to find a way to actually train my glutes again. Cause I'm like withering away. So that's been awesome for my glutes. So give me a, a lat pull down machine give me a belt squat and give me the seated uh chest fly machine by uh, i think it's like life fitness so brutal just absolutely crazy stretch for the pecs so that's what i'm gonna go with actually give me, i'm gonna go with the one that's like kind of ambiguous so you can do a chest press or a fly depending on how you set how you set up there so i think those three would have me covered but you know I think a lot of people, if, if I wasn't uh, totally hobbled and injured and, and extremely limited, I'd probably go chin-ups, bench press, and squat, but that's just not the life I live anymore. It's a tough life these days. Um, chin-ups, huh? Oh, chin-up for sure. Yeah, okay. great for the back, great for the biceps, definitely. Um, here, here's another one that, that's interesting. So we've got one from Jason Gross, if you don't mind me jumping ahead. Um now, Lauren, I know both of us intend to age, correct? Um, I, I plan to be around for a while. And so this question is about, you know, as you're, from someone who's approaching 50 years old, thinking about longevity, thinking about health span, what mix of cardio and lifting would you engage in? Um, and, and, you know, kind of elaborating, you know, what kind of cardio, what kind of durations, uh, you know, what would your lifting schedule look like your rep ranges kind of what would you do if someone said hey i'm 50 i i want to do what i can to age in a successful healthy way what should i do yeah i i think my advice wouldn't necessarily be that different from uh, for somebody who's approaching 50 as for somebody that is 30 um I would I'd start by saying, you know, are you, are you currently doing some sort of exercise? Do you have an athletic background? Uh, and would you prefer to to do more resistance training, more aerobic training? Uh, I think that preference is is a huge factor that's often sort of overlooked. And the uh, cardiovascular benefits, or, or benefits to aerobic fitness um, of lifting weights are, are often ignored or, or underestimated. So I'd say, uh, depending on on what 
Jason is currently doing, perhaps it would be to continue to do a mix. Um, I I wouldn't say jump up in volume from you know what you've been doing in your 40s or necessarily jump down in volume from from what you're doing uh, in your 40s. And the you know I, I think that as far as number of days or or rep ranges, volume, all of that, you know, um, we, we would want to apply the same principles of kind of sound training that we would for for somebody of any age. Um, what what's your what's your schedule? What kind of availability do you have? Um, let's do either full body training, maybe three times a week, or if you'd like to train more frequently than that and you prefer to do a, a some kind of a body part split like an upper lower I think that's completely fine too and uh make sure that to hit all the major muscle groups um until you don't have to train to failure but um uh, we'd want to be maybe two to three reps shy of failure and most importantly we want to progress over time whether that's adding load uh, adding repetitions, adding a set, some sort of uh, mode of, of progressive overload to to make sure that you know the adaptations continue. Yeah, yeah, I, I'm with you. I think preference is big because when we're looking at you know a lot of folks who read mass or listen to this or watch this, not all, but many are you know a, a decent percentage are powerlifters, and with powerlifting, like you kind of have to train this certain way. Um, to some extent, you know, you're going to have to squat, bench and deadlift. Uh, a lot of your stuff's got to be heavy because that's what the sport is. I think when you come from that background, it's it's really shocking to see how broad the window is in terms of like, how do we exercise to support health? I mean, it you don't have to hit a super narrow target in terms of what you're doing and how much and with what intensity you can actually support your health um, by really doing some pretty basic things and tailoring it to your preferences and your schedule. Um, like when you look at the the literature on like how much lifting is enough to maximize the health benefit. So not the performance benefit, not the physique benefit, the health benefit. Like you can probably do like two 30 minute sessions a week and get pretty close to maximizing the health benefits of resistance training, maximizing approximately, you know, get, getting the lion's share of the health benefit. Now, of course, it, it's great to do more. Um, it's certainly not not a problem, but like a lot of people are shocked to hear that, you know, depending on which paper you're looking at, in many cases, it's like an hour or two a week of resistance training is like really going to practically, not literally, but practically uh, get you the the essentially the maximum health benefit. So same thing with cardio, like if you find a type of cardio you like, go with it. There's no reason to try to force yourself into a particular intensity zone or uh, frequency if it if it just doesn't fit what you like to do. If you like to go for a long hike on Saturdays, go for a long hike on Saturdays. Um, but in terms of what I would try to do, uh, answering the question in a more traditional sense, um, I would say, you know, the recommendations that that are kind of floating around from all these governments and organizations, you know, medical organizations, they actually work. Like if you look at the literature, when people follow them and actually apply what these recommendations suggest, health outcomes are better and meaningfully better. And so those recommendations usually are to do 150 to 300 minutes per week of, you know, 
at least moderate intensity exercise. Um, and moderate is, is really not, I mean, we're talking about like a brisk walk and above is basically going to fit that, uh, that criteria. Now you could also do 75 to 150 minutes a week of vigorous exercise, which is not like high intensity cardio by any means. It's not like interval training. Vigorous is usually like six Mets and above. And most people will get there with a, a fairly light jog. So you really don't have to go too crazy to get really good benefits from exercise. So mixing and matching those two kind of categories and, and trying to make the numbers work there would be a good start. Um, I'd try to get probably, if I could, at least seven or 8,000 steps a day. Um, 10,000, if you're getting it, is great. But I, I think definitely seven or 8,000 would be where I would kind of start um, in terms of you know, a goal to kind of shoot for. Um, and you know, when I say start, I mean, you work your way up. If you're currently getting 2000, it doesn't mean you have to jump straight there, but you want to kind of relatively quickly work your way up toward a seven or 8,000 step a day count. If you can, uh, resistance training a couple days a week, minimum, you know, two, three, maybe four, if you feel like it, it really just depends. I think two should be plenty for health purposes. And if you're lifting for health, it looks a lot different than when you're lifting for, maximizing performance or competing on bodybuilding. You know, you, you want to think about what, what is the purpose of lifting for health? Uh, sometimes it's just kind of moving your muscles and, you know, disposing of some glucose, helping with glycemic control. Uh, in many cases you're thinking, how am I going to support bone density? So you want to make sure that you're doing some reasonably, you know, um, you, you want to make sure you're loading the, the bones that you're worried about, right? So if you're worried about you know, maybe your femurs and hips and spine, you probably want to do something that's relatively load bearing. That's going to, you know, put some strain on, on those bones. Um, you want to make sure that you're emphasizing, uh, activities of daily living. Things are going to carry over, I should say, to activities of daily living. So building up lower body musculature, uh, can, can be a really helpful thing. It doesn't mean you have to like do strong man and do like farmers carries because you're, you want to, you know, bring your groceries in every day. Um, there, there is tremendous carryover from very simple lower body exercises. Um, but you, you don't want to, you know, just do biceps and triceps all day and say, Hey, why, why am I still struggling to get out of my chair? And it's like, well, cause you're doing biceps and triceps. It's not really going to help you get out of a chair, uh, as you get, um, older and start to lose lower body strength and power. So that's kind of how I would do it. Um, I, I, so I'd probably, you know, I don't know if there's a number of days of cardio you need. You just kind of have to hit those totals and try to break up your sedentary time uh, to the extent that you can. A few days a week of lifting. And yeah, it's just a really broad window that you're shooting for there. You don't need to like thread the needle. I know someone uh, a few months ago ran a protocol by me and it was like, here's the cardio protocol for health. And it was like this hyper detailed rundown of frequency and, and duration and intensity. And it said, well, you can't go above this zone and you can't go below that zone. And they're like, what do you think? And I was like, this uh, protocol, this plan is perfectly compatible with health adaptations, but it, it's totally off base in terms of acting like there's this narrow window that you have to, you know, perfectly balance these variables to optimize health. I mean, there's, there's so much that you could do. So my biggest thing is if you're Consulting with someone, if you're advising someone who's trying to support their health through exercise, make it simpler, not more complicated, because it's really not that, you know, you don't have to be that precise if you're just trying to support your health. And you don't want to overwhelm someone by saying, 
okay, here's this really, really, really specific protocol. And if you don't like it too bad, it's either do this or be unhealthy because that's really not the case. And it could, um, it could backfire because Lauren, bringing it back to what you started with, like the best thing you can do is going to be find a protocol that works for you that, that you find to be enjoyable because adherence is going to be the biggest part of the equation here. Yeah. And I would really highlight your point about uh, getting in your your steps per day or, or just being kind of physically active in a way that's not necessarily structured exercise because even if you are doing really vigorous exercise you know a couple of days a week if you're being relatively sedentary the rest of the time um, that has more health implications and and so even if you're somebody who can't get to the gym that regularly uh, it's really, really powerful to to just be more physically active, whether that's, you know, parking further away from the grocery store or um, going on a, a walk uh, or, or, you know, just being a, a bit more physically active here and there where you can and doing that consistently. Uh, I, I think that's not to be underestimated. Yeah. Um, I think this ties into another question that we got about, uh, and I think you you, cut, you sort of touched on this a little bit, but uh, biggest errors made regarding exercise prescription. Mm. So you 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 touched on that a little bit, maybe if you want to elaborate. Yeah, I, I yeah I think that uh, it's funny when I read this question, I wasn't sure what I would go with, but I think I've talked myself into an answer already. I think the biggest error that people make regarding exercise prescription is they, they just try to make it too complicated. Um, you know, I, and I'm not saying that you shouldn't dig into the nuances and the complexities of different types of exercise. That That's what makes this stuff fun, in my opinion. I mean, I fell in love with lifting through the process of trying a million different types of training and switching from one to the other and and thinking maybe this will be something that unlocks some additional gains for me. So I'm not saying that you can't um, embrace that, but, um, you know, it's really a matter of perspective. You know, if you are going from one thing to the next and the next because you're trying to find the one true perfect type of training, I think you're way off base. I I think that the better way to... uh, to kind of conceptualize that in terms of your perspective is like you're at the cheesecake factory. I don't know if anyone's going to understand that. I don't know how international a cheesecake factory is, but in the United States, the cheesecake factory is a restaurant and they are notorious for having the biggest menu you could possibly imagine. And honestly, it's probably fashionable to bash the cheesecake factory. Everything I've ever had there was excellent. I don't know how they do it. They make a lot of different things very well. In my opinion, I'm not a food snob, but anyway, the idea is there's so much to choose from and it's all nice. Okay. So I think sometimes in the industry, people make it seem like there's just like this really, really precise target you have to hit with your training prescription and that, um, you know, training, putting together a decent program is like the hardest thing in the world. It's really not. I think what makes a really good coach is understanding conceptually what are the pros and cons of various styles of training and being able to understand for a given individual, a given client of all these different menu items that I can choose from, what is going to be the best option at this point in time that matches your preferences and maximizes your rate of progress towards your goal. 
And it's very possible that there are three different things we could do right now that could equally maximize your progress towards your goal. But as a good coach, I know how to kind of balance those three different styles of training and give you a unique prescription that's actually going to be enjoyable. It's going to fit your schedule. It's going to fit your extra, your equipment availability, all those sorts of things. So I'm not trying to like dumb it down and say, hey, just go do hard stuff for 30 minutes, three times a week and stop thinking about this crap because thinking about it's fun and thinking about it in, a, in an effective way and understanding conceptually different styles of training is what makes you good at training or good at coaching someone uh, with exercise prescription. But, you know, I, I mentioned this a while ago. I, I think um, sometimes people uh, tend to overcomplicate things. You know, I, I, I've had... Uh, conversations with people where they're like, I'm just not sure which muscle this is training. And it's like, well, you know, when you're doing it, you probably feel some muscle filling up with blood and burning when the set gets hard and then is sore about 48 hours later. That's what, that's what you're training. You know, you don't need to like dig into PubMed and find like seven EMG studies to try to make an inference about that. Like, because even if you did, they might be executing that exercise a little bit differently in a way that's not really going to jump off the page. Right. So, um, sometimes we kind of over, overcomplicate exercise prescription. And I think, uh, I think embracing the, the various types of exercise is fantastic and, and learning these different concepts and learning the variety is terrific, but, uh, we have a lot of tools to work with. So, um, you know, sometimes people act like it, putting together a perfect program is this like extremely impossible balance of variables. And, and in reality, there's a lot of wiggle room there that we have to work with. Um, what do you think, Lauren? Yeah, I think those are great points. Um, except for the large menu, uh, I do not trust a diner, and I do not trust a large menu. If you have too many options, I don't believe that you can do anything well. Have so you, have that's you been my hot to the take. Cheesecake Factory. I I have I the went... decor is perplexing. I don't understand what the theme is. It's cool, I suppose. Yeah, the food's good. It, the cheesecake is excellent. Mm-hmm. I, I've never had cheesecake from the Cheesecake Factory. Uh, you know, did you know? Did you know that they're that's kind of their thing? When you walked in and saw it on the sign. Yeah, uh, one one would assume. Yeah, but uh, I I just I don't like a large menu. I think that you need to specialize in order for it to be good. Now, does that carry over to your feelings about fitness? Do you think everyone should specialize in one style of training and then give all their clients the same exact general program? Uh, I don't think that that's a appropriate comparison. Okay. Um, but you you brought up the menu and the Cheesecake Factory I erroneously. Yeah. Uh, and, and so I, I felt like I did need to address that. Uh, I think you are besides that on board. Um, I'm, I'm with you. And I think the flexibility or, or the willingness to adjust over time is really important and often missed because there are seasons in life where we are, it is fun, as you say, to really, you know, dial it in and, and think about how to optimize everything and, uh, play around with with different strategies and different variations of a particular exercise or try to bring up a weak body part or whatever, right? But there are other seasons where we're kind of over that or our clients are 
are just, they're not there. Uh, and in order to continue to, to stay engaged or continue to help that client in an effective way, I think we need to be responsive to that and say, I mean, one of the strategies that, that Ali uses to have a week or two of, hey, just go into the gym and do what you feel like doing for three times a week. Yeah. Um, make training fun again, because when we try to optimize every single thing, it can get really exhausting. And I don't think it it's always fun. Um, yeah. And when we overthink every single little element, um, it it can it can start to to feel like more work. Um, and so I think that in order to to be a good coach and and in order, in order to just stay engaged in in fitness, that we need to expect and respond to those various seasons uh, of our relationship with our our fitness journey. Yeah, yeah. If you're not careful, aiming for perfect can really rob the joy from the process of training. Um, in some instances, aiming for perfect can facilitate joy in training, but it really comes down to context and the way that it's being approached. Uh, but I agree with you. I mean, I had a, a powerlifting client one time who made uh, really fantastic progress the entire time that we worked together. Um, I mean, most of her check-ins, she was just like, I can't believe how quickly I'm building strength. It, it was a, re a, we worked really well together, but there were times like she formerly had a background in CrossFit and was getting into powerlifting. And, uh, there would be times where I was starting to notice a little bit of staleness in training, but I could tell we don't need a deload. There, there's not a physiological need for rest right now. There's staleness that's related to monotony because when you boil it down, powerlifting, you kind of got to do a few lifts that kind of matter, right? So, you know, after a little bit of staleness would set in, coming from a CrossFit background where there's so much variety and it's a new thing every day, I would actually tell her, we're not doing a deload, but for the next X number of workouts, go do CrossFit. And like, we're just going to change things up. We're not going to lose strength doing CrossFit for a week or two. Like, you're not. Um, have you ever seen like, I mean, CrossFit people who do CrossFit well are strong and they're in great shape. So, you know, we're not going to lose anything from doing that for a week or two. I wouldn't do a full preparation for a powerlifting meet doing just CrossFit, obviously. But, um, but yeah, I mean, we would go in and just do these kind of transition weeks where the goal was just to go have fun. And I, I think a lot of coaches discount how valuable that is. It's not just like a, oh yeah, go do your own thing and, and kind of, I'll check back in with you. It, it's not like punting for a week and saying, you know, I'll put more effort in next week. Uh, it, it really does matter when your clients are having fun and enjoying the process and getting to have a little bit of autonomy in terms of how those workouts look. Um, if you dive into the coaching literature, you are going to see the word autonomy come up time and time and time again. A good coach supports client autonomy. A terrible coach thwarts client autonomy and creative ways of working autonomy into the plan um, you're going to notice the more you do it the happier your clients are the better progress they make and um, I mean you will find yourself in a position I talked about last week where a client will want to work with you indefinitely if they if they're really having a great time and, and they feel that sense of autonomy and relatedness with you 
And rather than trying to say, how am I going to keep a roster full? Sometimes you have to sit down with a client and say, I don't think you need me anymore. I would encourage you to to go elsewhere. I mean, I'm still here for you. I'm, I'm happy to keep doing it, but I think you should know that you're ready to to kind of spread your wings and 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 fly and, and go do your own thing now. Um, but anyway, yeah, I, I, I think we're definitely on the same page there. But before we move on to totally different topics, I wanted to hit one more that has it's kind of in this theme of uh, you know, we've talked about our favorite exercises and, and kind of the flexibility to do, to do different types of exercises, uh, in programming. So we had a question from Jameson and Jameson said, I've heard that you should do free weight presses and not just machine presses in order to not neglect stabilizer muscles. However, I've seen many natural pro bodybuilders do all of their pressing on machines. Is the whole stabilizer muscle idea a false notion slash Lauren, you've written about machines and mass. What's the deal? Do we really need to be doing free weight exercises to make sure that those kind of small stabilizer muscles are uh, are doing their thing and getting the attention they need? Yeah, I, I've written about this a couple of times. One uh, in one article, I compared um, or I, I reviewed a paper that compared free weight and and machine based training. And it seems that they're really transferable. And so, you know, particularly for people who are training for general fitness or or general strength and, and certainly for hypertrophy, if you are doing machine-based exercises, those um, performance adaptations will translate to similar uh, free weight exercises and vice versa. Uh, I, I we we'd also say that um, we would expect similar muscle growth from the machine based and free weight exercise training. Obviously, if you're training for performance like powerlifting or Olympic lifting, where you're required to perform maximal strength at a particular exercise, then you know you need to be focusing your training accordingly. Um, However, in in the absence of that, then I, th- I think you should feel free to include some machine weight, uh, machine based training, if that's your preference. Um, the in terms of the the stabilizer muscles or the core musculature, that's that's certainly something that that you commonly see in the fitness space where people will say, oh, uh, you know, if you're doing a uh, you know, you need to do a barbell squat. You can't do a leg press or hack squat because you're neglecting your core musculature. But what we actually see is that the uh, the core musculature is activated based on the load that you're using, and so you know, requiring force production from the core is required whether it's a machine-based exercise or a free weight exercise and when you look at hypertrophy in the rectus abdominis from free weight or machine-based exercises you actually see similar hypertrophy so it it's a it's it's a bit of a of a misconception that you need to be doing you know, your your barbell squat or what have you in order to you know quote challenge the the core musculature as opposed to incorporating 
the uh, similar movement pattern machine-based exercise. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this um, stabilizer thing is something that you hear about a lot. I've never seen, to to be fair, like I've, I've seen research referring to what you're talking about with core musculature. I've never seen any literature uh, specifically focused on pressing exercises and stabilizer muscles. It could be out there. It's not an area of the literature that I would expect myself to stumble upon. I usually stay more in the like uh, metabolism, general physiology, and nutrition literature because we've got you and Zordos and Helms digging through the training stuff. But um, yeah, I, I've heard this come up a lot. I've never seen any evidence to support it. I've also never seen any evidence to refute it necessarily because I, I just haven't seen this work happening in general. But um, I am quite skeptical of the idea. Um, it doesn't really seem intuitively um, logical to me personally. Um, I, I understand, you know, why people why people have kind of fallen into that concept. I, I think a lot of times people will say, well, if I could machine press, you know, 180, but then I'm, I have to cut the weight down a lot to use these dumbbells, I must be doing something extra here, you know? And, and I think um, it, it's really just when, you, when you're moving something on a, a pre-specified track, you're, you're able to just put a little bit more into it. It, it just gets easier, um, you know, in terms of the, the absolute load. Um, so I, I, I don't know. I, I've never seen evidence to confirm or reject this when it comes to pressing, but I, I'm personally not sold by the idea. And um, if there was merit to the idea, I'd be pretty screwed because I think right now, a hundred percent actually of my training is machine based, uh, fully machine based, uh, full machine or body weight is all I'm doing right now. Um, and even when you think about that, machine based kind of falls on a spectrum, you know, because it's like um, when I'm doing a, a something with the belt squat. That's uh, you know, it's it's not very restrictive in terms of what my what my movement characteristics are. I'm not like locked into a leg press if I'm doing something on a belt squat, whether it's a deadlift variation or a squat variation. If I'm doing something with cables, you know, it's a machine, but they also tend to have more uh, movement degrees of freedom. There's a lot more flexibility for for how you move that load. Um, and then there's like the classic hammer strength stuff where it's like this thing will only move in exactly one, one way and you just push with all your might. So even, um, you know, talking about machine based exercises, it's kind of a continuum where there, there's varying degrees of kind of machine guided stability, uh, for how that weight is moving. But, you know, when it comes to this question of how should I balance, you know, free weight pressing versus machine based pressing, I would say, let your preferences guide the way, um, you know, listen to some of that biofeedback. If you feel like you're getting a great workout and you're you're progressing and things are moving well, you know, by all means, stick with what you're doing. The one area where I've seen machines backfire, you know, just to be fair and balanced here, give the other side of the coin. The one time or the, the one instance where I see machines backfire is if a machine's just not built well for a, a particular person, right? And that happens sometimes. Like I, I've I've gotten on some hamstring curl machines where I'm like, I, I don't know what other people's, how other people's knees work, but this thing does not work for me. You know, the, the, um, the, the tension is just all off the, you know, it just feels terrible. So if you're on a pressing machine and you're just not getting a, a good stimulus because it's not built well for you, the, you know, the range of motion and the angle at which you're pressing just doesn't make sense based on, you know, the geometry of your joints, then I would say 
punt on it. Go find something that, that gives you a less restricted uh, plane of movement so that you can actually work, uh, you know, work your musculature in a way that works for, for the way you're built. Because, you know, every now and then you're going to find a pressing machine where you're just like, this thing is trash. And, and that goes for just about every kind of machine there is out there. I, I've, I've used terrible leg presses, terrible leg extensions, leg curls, pressing uh, machines, row machines. I've used bad machines for everything you could possibly think of. So um, sometimes you will encounter these machines that are just not built for someone who's shaped the way you're shaped. And in that case, then I think there is a lot of benefit of moving toward a, a different alternative that's just less restrictive. Yeah. The, the, the one other thing I'd add to that is if you are tracking your loads, uh, you know, from workout to workout, week to week, and you're maybe working out at different gyms or you're bouncing around between different machines, uh, you you should just be mindful that not all machines are created equal. And so uh, while it's it's easier to track, you know, one dumbbell or barbell exercise session um, from one to the next, it, it doesn't necessarily work that way if you're doing a lot of machine training. So just keep that in mind if you're incorporating that into your program. Yeah, that, that is a bit of a downside if you like to um, train at a lot of a few different locations. Like I've had clients in the past who on work days, they train at the gym near their work, but then on weekends, they train at the gym near their house. And if you're trying to have that, that kind of transitive property of, you know, I want to do the same workout in two different gyms, machines do make that a lot more difficult. You have to kind of account for the fact that resistance is a little bit different on two similar but not identical machines. Um, we got a couple quick questions here about lengthened partials. Um, you know, this would be a, a great question for Helms. I know he's kind of our in-house expert on lengthened partials, but uh, I think we're up to the challenge here. And this is a topic that um, it, it's interesting. I'll be honest. I am old. Uh, I'm boring. And I, you know, nine to five, I'm doing academic work. So I don't know what's going on out there in the fitness world. But sometimes we'll get questions, a ton of questions about a particular topic. And it tells me this is what's in these days. This is what the kids are talking about. Length and partials. Someone out there is making a lot of content about this for sure, because we get question after question. And I'm not complaining, by the way. I, these are great questions. And I think it's a really cool technique. But it is just kind of funny when you, you, you just get this sense of like, man, someone out there is talking about this a lot because it is just getting a lot of traction, uh, which is totally fine by me. So the first question here is, when doing lengthened partials, is it better to limit the total lengthening so that there is still tension on the muscle or go to a full passive stretch? So, um, my, so with lengthened partials, this isn't like a necessarily like a loaded stretch type of technique uh, in the strictest sense. So lengthened partials, basically what we're talking about is it's not like you're going to a longer muscle length than if you were doing full range of motion training. Like you're going to the same lengthened position as if you were doing full ROM training. The difference is that you are not doing the shorter end of that range of motion. So think about if we're doing uh, lengthened partials with a bicep curl. It's not like we're going to some kind of extra extended position that is like super stretching our biceps at the bottom. We're still going to the bottom the way we normally do, 
the the whole thing with a length and partial is that instead of bringing that load all the way up, we're only going you know a fraction of the way up, maybe halfway up. Maybe we're just going up till we hit that sticking point about halfway there, and that's where we're kind of cutting those reps off. So um, hopefully, I, I think that kind of clears up the answer to that question where. Um, it's not about limiting the total lengthening so that there's tension on the muscle. It's just about the fact that the, the, the lengthened position isn't really changing. It's just the fact that we are not doing that shorter half or quarter tooth, whatever fraction you're using for your length and partial, we're just cutting the, that shorter end of the range of motion out of the picture. Um, anything to add to that, Lauren? No, I think you covered that. Yeah. Um, and then the other one. So Austin asks, given the research showing that training a muscle at long lengths is important, would it make sense to pause in the lengthened position of an exercise? Um, so kind of getting back to the the start here uh, with lengthened partials, as I previously described, the whole idea is that for whatever reason, there, there's been a few papers now indicating that doing lengthened partials, so basically just cutting out the short end of the range of motion, uh, seems to be in some cases better than doing full range of motion training. And there's a few theories about mechanistically why that might be. Uh, I know Helms reviewed those in a previous episode. He did a great job with that. I don't think it is uh, kind of, I don't think there's a totally conclusive consensus among experts on what that mechanism is. Um, so when it comes to taking a pause in the lengthened position, um, I don't necessarily suspect that that would make the strategy more effective. Um, when I think of you know some of the mechanisms that come into play in terms of why lengthened partials might be slightly better than full range of motion, um, you know, just going through some of the ones that Helms listed previously in my head, um, you know, I, I just don't really. Uh, anticipate that adding a pause will necessarily make that strategy more effective. That's purely conjecture on my part, um, but I'm I'm not aware of any research. Um, and again, I'm not the guy who's in all the training literature all the time, but I'm not aware of research indicating that pausing in a lengthened position would necessarily be advantageous. And just from a kind of theoretical perspective, I'm I'm quite skeptical that you would see much of a benefit from that. I, I would say um, you're probably better off. You know, yeah. I, I I'm not sold by that. What What do you think, Lauren? Yeah, I'm not either. I I mean, when we think about putting mechanical tension uh, on the muscle over a a set, a given set, if you were to pause in in the lengthened position, you probably would end up doing less repetitions and then your total like volume would go down and so i think that i mean i i appreciate the question i understand the thought pattern behind it but i think that practically speaking you would uh i mean it's it's sort of the same reason why we don't see a benefit to like the rest of pause training that's the closest liter uh, thing that i can i can think of that actually has is in the literature that this particular scenario I, i'm not aware of any research yeah I, I also the more that i think about it i think um the effect of pausing at the lengthened um kind of end of the range of motion it would actually look very very different for different types of exercises so like for example 
Um, if I'm paused at the lengthened portion of a bicep curl, I'm just chilling. I, I, I can pause there all day. I mean, for, for like, you know, you, you're just kind of catching your breath and if anything, just resting more so that you can get some extra reps. Um, so I, I, yeah, I think, but, but if you think about pausing in the lengthened position of, uh, a bench press, um, it, you know, if you're pausing with tension and keeping that bar, just a, you know, a fraction of a, of a centimeter off your chest, that's going to be really hard. And it's actually probably going to limit the number of repetitions you can do in that set. So on the, on the previous, uh, example, pausing at the bottom of a bicep curl, I, I just think if anything, you're just kind of giving yourself a little breather, uh, making things a little bit easier pausing at, at you know, the bottom of a bench press with tension, um, you know, I think ultimately whatever you're gaining from having that, you know, time under tension and bearing that load, you're also forfeiting the ability to do more reps, um, in that kind of partial range of motion where you're actually concentrically and eccentrically moving the load rather than doing an isometric. So, um, with all those factors in mind, I would probably skip the pauses and, you know, lengthen partials, just do them with kind of a normal tempo in my opinion. Um, yeah, I was thinking what w- you would have tension. So even in the bicep curl example, uh, like let's say you were doing a, a cable curl facing yeah. away from the cable, that kind of. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I, that would make it a lot more similar where, where you're, you're still at least have some tension on there. But I, I think uh, whatever you're gaining from that extra time under tension in an isometric sense, you're kind of sacrificing the, the dynamic repetitions on the back end. So probably not an advantageous trade-off in my opinion. Yeah, I think anytime you're employing a technique that is going to uh, cut your volume substantially, it, it, that's a scenario where you really need to, to to think about that because when we when we think about all of the the training variables that are important, um, you know, particularly for hypertrophy, we know that volume is is really up there. Uh, so anything that is going to substantially cut into that is is something that that should be really carefully considered. Yeah, definitely. Um, do you mind if I jump into the live chat here? There's some good questions in here. Go for it. We got to give the live audience some love. Um, first of all, a uh, little, little, little bit of funny jokes in there, Philip and Kim. Uh, try to keep it Keep it focused, business-oriented in the chat, please, if you don't mind. Lauren and I are at work here, and we don't have time to joke around. Um, so Mike's in the chat. Uh, good to see him representing the team there, uh, kind of dealing with some of the tomfoolery in the chat. I appreciate that, Mike. Um, Philip asked, uh, if I can't get 100% of my workout in the morning, but I can finish it in the afternoon, is that just as effective as getting it all done in the morning? I would say, generally speaking, yes. Um, you know, getting that volume in, even if you have to spread it over a couple sessions, based on what I've seen in the two-a-day literature, uh, there's nothing really special, I, I would say, about two-a-days or splitting into morning and evening sessions. But if it's what you need to do to get the, the volume in and get that stimulus, I, I think it's uh, totally fine, neither better nor worse. Um, let's see here. Oh, Trex Nation, Trex Army, and the Trex Hive checking in in the chat love to see that appreciate that very much um that's tomfoolery no that's just kind of people letting me know that they support me which is always appreciated um 
there's one here that I don't know the answer to, to be totally honest. So uh, there's a question about the connection between fatty acid uh, quality and palatability. Um, you know, talking about, you know, saturated fats versus, um, you know, poly and monounsaturated fats and how that might impact palatability. Um, I'd have to actually dig into some literature to, to get to the bottom of that. I mean, I know that fatty acid makeup, um, you know, when we're talking about saturated versus mono versus polyunsaturated, um, you know, I've done a lot of, I've done many articles about their various characteristics in terms of how they might impact blood lipids or how they might impact satiety. Um, and, you know, I, I've dug into all these different uh, nooks and crannies of those comparisons, uh, but I have not looked in specifically into palatability. So I'm going to give myself a homework assignment, look into that and check back in later rather than guessing and making a fool of myself. Um Vincent. I would just jump in to yeah. say that with with the palatability, it, it's often that there um, is it's a combination of of carbohydrates and fat. So you know it's like a high sugar and high fat food when you think about something like pizza or cake or um, and so typically what you're we're not looking specifically at one macronutrient and it's often a combination. Yeah. Yeah. I, I do wonder if, uh, now I'm going to make a fool of myself getting right into the, into the conjecture uh, that I swore I wouldn't do. Uh, so with saturated fat, you know, the, the question did specify that it seems to find its, its way into a lot of palatable foods. Um, part of me wonders to what extent that has to do with shelf stability, to what extent that has to do with mouthfeel, uh, because certainly um, you know, saturated fatty acids do tend to have different, uh, um, you know, texture and consistency compared to unsaturated. So I, I, I wouldn't be shocked if there is something to it in terms of, you know, we find a lot of saturated fats popping up in these palatable, palatable foods, especially prepackaged foods with long shelf lives, maybe because of stability on the shelf, better textural um, uh, characteristics. Because if memory serves, I think that's one of the reasons that they got really interested in putting a lot of hydrogenated oils into um, prepackaged food items that would be shelf-stable for a while, is that there were some benefits to stability over time and also um, better texture for some of these products. So um, ignore everything I just said. I'm thinking out loud. I will do my homework and get back to you, Kim, with a more informed answer. Um Vincent asks, what are some healthy strategies for bulking? If you're always satiated, you got no appetite, uh, and you want to eat more calories, especially on a plant-based diet. Um, so bulking, you know, at the end of the day, what you're, what you're doing with bulking is you're trying to supplement your diet with calories. Um, you know, if you're struggling to gain weight and you don't have much of an appetite, you know, it's, it's really just going to be, how do we find ways to get calories in so that we can achieve um, you know, a, I would say usually a small energy surplus. You don't need to be in some giant thousand calorie surplus to build muscle. Um, but, but I'm going to assume based on the question that you're trying to gain weight, it's not working out, appetite's low. And I, I usually encourage people in that scenario not to get too caught up in this idea of, you know, clean versus dirty foods or healthy versus unhealthy foods. You want the base of your diet to deliver the nutrients that you need, right? So I'm going to assume you're getting 
plenty of protein, plenty of fiber, vitamins, minerals, all the good stuff, fruits and veggies. You're on a plant-based diet. I assume you're at least getting plenty of vegetables and, and hopefully fruits as well. So at that point, the question is, how do I get extra calories in? And it doesn't have to be the prettiest thing. It, it can be, um, I mean, I, I used to tell folks, you know, eat a candy bar, you know, go get some ice cream or vegan ice cream if you're on a plant-based diet. Um, it's, it's really just finding a way to supplement your diet with calories to go above and beyond that base diet that's already covering your nutrient needs. So, um, yeah, I, I used to teach a weight training class, uh, at a university and I'd get these, you know, 18 year old kids in there who were trying to, you know, get buff cause they just moved into college and everything, which is of course, exactly how I spent my freshman year. And they're like, man, I just can't gain any weight and I'm eating as much as I can. I'll go, what are you eating? And they're like broccoli and chicken and sometimes a, a white potato, uh, or a sweet potato. And I'm like, you're eating the food that I would eat if I was trying to kill my appetite, you know, trying to just get by on a low calorie diet. And I would tell them like, dude, you got a, you got a thing to swipe into the food hall. You know, they got pizza in there. You know, they got ice cream in there. Like, it, you know, as long as the base of your diet is generally well-rounded and nutritious, we're just trying to add some calories on top of that. So I view it as like the way that we might add a scoop of protein if we're trying to get more protein in the diet. You're just looking for a calorie supplement. So the most palatable way to do it that fits your dieting preferences, I would just go for it because the kind of health ramifications, it's really going to come down to your total energy intake. You know, the the, the metabolic consequences of bulking, they kind of are what they are. Whether you're in a 600 calorie surplus of, you know, potatoes and chicken or a 600 calorie surplus of mostly good stuff and a tidy, tiny bit of candy. Um, it, it's not going to be a tremendously different outcome. What do you think, Lauren? Yeah. Cereal. If you're in the dining hall, they always have like 12 different types of cereal. So actually, uh, someone made a joke, um, a very mean-spirited joke in the chat about, uh, I, I had a recipe back in the day where I would use cottage cheese when I made lasagna, um, which was actually very good and very well-received. It was um, not well received. I recall that, and I trolled you hard. I think it was, but um, my wife said it was great. Mm -hmm. But uh, an actual good recipe that I used to make: um, Greek yogurt, peanut butter, and chocolate pudding mix. You mix that up into like a chocolate pudding. You put in cinnamon toast crunch, the cereal, give it a little crunchy texture, and you put in semi-sweet chocolate chips. It is the most decadent meal you could ever possibly have. Alternatively, if you don't want to do all that, just cinnamon toast crunch, put in semi-sweet chocolate chips, put some milk in there. It is fantastic. A match made in heaven. So that's a freebie. Everyone go try it. It's, it's wonderful. Lauren, how do you feel about cinnamon toast crunch? Cinnamon toast crunch is good, but I wouldn't take any culinary advice from you. That I think that's fair. Um, Someone asked, could higher intensity forms of cardio reduce the minimum dose? And I think this was asked when I was talking through my kind of recommendations for exercise for health and longevity. The answer is definitely yes. So um, if you're talking like the, like I said, the recommendation, assuming that you were just doing moderate intensity cardio, the recommendation is to get at least 150 minutes per week. If you were just doing vigorous, higher intensity cardio than that moderate category, like I said, it doesn't have to be super high, but higher intensity, they cut that recommendation all the way down from 
at least 150 down to at least 75. So absolutely, if you are doing a mixture of these two, you kind of have to, you know, you, you kind of infer that, you know, the, um, the uh, higher intensity cardio is basically worth double, right? So instead of 150, you would only need 75. So if you're going to mix and match, you can kind of piece them together that way to kind of get your total cumulative amount of recommended exercise. But certainly, the more that you incorporate some of that vigorous intensity cardio, the more you reduce the kind of minimum dose needed to to meet those recommendations for general health. Um, anything to add to that, Lauren? No, I, I think I'd just say um, that in and of itself, if you're finding that those more vigorous forms of exercise are uh problematic for you from a recovery perspective or from a joint health perspective that you shouldn't feel pressured to to do that and um you know i, I know that running is often sort of the go-to for for people who are looking to improve their health and fitness and uh, the, and then you have run into a, a whole host of problems um that you wouldn't have encountered had you done some incline walking or hiking or elliptical or something like that. So um, I, I think that if, if you enjoy vigorous cardio um, and that that's, that's what you prefer, then go for it. But it's not better uh, or, or a must do um, when, when you compare it to more moderate intensity or even lower intensity, you know, assuming that you that you adjust the dose appropriately. Yeah, great point. And you know, my my top four types of cardio. I do a lot of incline walking. I do a lot of paddle boarding. I do a lot of kayaking, and I do a lot of hiking. Winter time, mostly incline walking. But when it warms up, I get to do all the other fun stuff. So, yeah, pretty much all my cardio these days is low intensity because of the injury that I'm training around. I do like to run, but I always hurt myself, which is not not ideal. Not what you want to do. Um, I tell you what, one more from the chat here, not going to get to all of them. There's a couple that I don't feel comfortable asking. One is more like a physical therapy question about a uh, tennis elbow. I feel like anytime you have an injury, my recommendation is always to chat with a clinician just to make sure that they can really examine exactly what's going on and give you a kind of customized tailored solution to that. So, um, I used to teach an injury course at university uh, where I would talk about how to tell if someone had tennis elbow. And uh, I'm sure we talked about treatment options in that course, but it's been many, many years. And so I don't want to give bad clinical advice uh, on the internet. There's already enough bad clinical advice on the internet. No need to add to the pile. Um, so one more here that I want to get to. Uh, would creatine increase blood creatinine levels even in a non-responder? Um, so creatine, we take it, it increases power and strength and to some extent hypertrophy. Um, when we break creatine down, the breakdown product is creatinine. And so for someone who's a creatine non-responder, would they still experience this increase in creatinine levels? Uh, my answer would be absolutely. Um, and if anything, I would expect them, well, technically, Theoretically, I would expect them to have even more uh, breakdown of creatinine to a level that would be probably not detectable. So I wouldn't expect it to actually show up in a blood test. But if anything, theoretically, 
at least someone who is a responder is going to be taking a bigger fraction of that creatine that comes in and actually for the short term storing it in muscle versus, you know, someone who's a non-responder usually means that their baseline creatine is already pretty much saturated. And so instead of shuttling that creatine that's consumed into the muscle and storing it, pretty much all of it is going to just get broken down to creatinine and excreted uh, through the urine. So definitely I would expect to see similar, if not slightly higher uh, creatinine levels in a non-responder. Um, I'd tell you what, there's one more in the chat that that I think we can get to. And Lauren, I'm going to throw this one to you because I know I've been hijacking the uh, the live chat questions here. So how would you train someone with very high adiposity in the 50 plus age range, um, given their mobility restrictions and the danger of falls, would you even recommend a resistance training program for someone in that scenario? I would. Uh, of course, I, I would want a little bit more information, you know, high adiposity, meaning like, are they mobile at all? Um, but I think that there's certainly various resistance exercises that you can perform even lying down or seated. Uh, people will do that, you know, in the hospital, for example, if, if uh, you're, you're you know, trying to recover from, from a surgery or if you're on extended bed rest, and that can be really helpful. So I think uh, that I, I would kind of meet them where they are, depending on the, the specific mobility restrictions. Uh, of course, you know, if, if this is somebody who, who can stand and walk, then I, I would really focus on that, at least initially, um, because the, you know, we would like to just increase physical activity in general. And um, that that would be a, a big first step in doing so for for health and also for uh, hoping to you know, promote a, a little bit of fat loss. Um, so that you could progress a, a more advanced exercise program. But I think regardless of um, the of whatever kind of state that you're in, mobility-wise, there are still elements of a resistance training program that you can incorporate, whether it's with a partner or with uh, resistance bands. Um, it doesn't have to be a, a, like a traditional you know, you're in the gym, kind of a workout, and so even with with body weight for somebody who who is is really untrained or is really struggling with with mobility, you know, working up to um, a, a a certain length of of a walk or a body weight squat, for example, or like I said, um, exercises with bands. There's a, there's a lot of of options there, and I think that whatever that that individual can do meet them where they are and then you know focus on progressing absolutely i agree yeah i i think if you get creative and you are very um cautious with your implementation there's usually ways that you can incorporate elements of resistance training in pretty high risk populations without adding any excess risk um you know it, there there are usually safe ways to incorporate this other modality of exercise that can be uh, independently beneficial on top of other modalities of exercise that might be part of the program for sure. Um, I've got uh, a question here 
that uh, I definitely want to get to here. So, oops, I just made it unreadable in the outline. So we had a question from Daman Deep, and the question is, if an individual for some reason can't consume optimal protein, can they still make hypertrophy progress? If yes, what strategies can be used to drive growth? Um, I am so glad that someone asked this question because this has been something that I've been ranting about and ranting about for the last probably year and a half. Um, so this gives me another opportunity to rant and I'm not going to turn that down. And this is going to be one of those uh, one of those special moments on the presentation, the, uh, the show here, where I'm going to use visual aids. So uh, I'm going to put up on the screen a couple figures from a mass article that I, I had a, maybe a year, year and a half ago on this exact topic, topic because one of the things that um, I'm cool, I'm a happy guy, I'm content, but one thing that kind of bothers me in fitness is that everyone kind of decided the optimal amount of protein is 1.6 to 2.2 grams of protein per kilogram of body mass per day. Now, what if you're 5% body fat versus 50% body fat? No one really talks about it. Everyone just says, no, there's the, the perfect range that we have. Well, are we sure that 1.6 is meaningfully better than 1.5? Again, no one really talks into that or, you know, no, no one really talks about that or kind of entertains that concept. Everyone just kind of said, okay, 1.6 to 2.2, we're good. Now, listen, I think that that range is perfectly adequate for supporting hypertrophy, but my contention is that we have a little bit too much confidence in the boundaries of that range. A lot of folks, because that range has become so popular, a lot of folks believe that once you drop down to 1.58 grams per kilogram per day, your gains just fall off a cliff because you're out of the good range and you're into the bad range. So what I want to show here on the screen, if you're on YouTube, you are in luck. You're getting the full multimedia experience. If you're in the podcast, you're just going to have to take my word for it. But uh, but it is up on YouTube if you decide you want to look at it later. Um the figure that you see on the screen right now on YouTube, it shows um, from the classic meta-analysis by Morton and colleagues, this is where the 1.6 to 2.2 recommendation comes from. And it's a meta-regression, and you can see that the line approximately starts to flatten out around 1.6. And on the x-axis, we have total protein intake in grams per kilograms per day. On the y-axis, we have uh, gains in fat-free mass over the course of a resistance training program. So that inflection point appears to be at about 1.6, but the 95% confidence interval ranges from 1.03 to 2.2 grams per kilogram per day. Um, and I would challenge someone to look at the actual data points in this figure and tell me that, you know, you feel really, really confident that someone who's eating what uh, you know, two point two grams per kilogram per day is really certainly going to be better off than someone eating one point four. I think if you look at the actual raw data points, it's very difficult to make that super definitive conclusion. Um, now I'm showing a different figure. This is a, a newer meta analysis by Nunez and colleagues. Again, same kind of deal. Um, on the x-axis, we're looking at protein intake. On the y-axis, we're looking at um, gains in lean mass, I believe. Once again, you, what you see is a lot of very spread out data. 
you can definitely get on board with the idea that more protein is a good idea for hypertrophy, for building muscle. But again, I don't know if anyone can really tell me definitively that being at 2.2 grams per kilogram per day, based on the actual data in the figure, is going to be much better off than someone who's eating 1.4, 1.5. And so what I'm getting at here is that when you look at the actual raw data, this 1.6 cutoff, it is not as much of a cutoff as some folks uh, make it seem. Now, it's a perfectly adequate uh, lower end of the range if you're saying, listen, I don't mind if I'm going overboard on protein. I just want to be certain that I'm not leaving gains on the table. When someone comes to me with that kind of perspective, then yeah, 1.6 to 2.2 usually does a good job. So I'm not saying that the the protein uh, recommendation is letting people down, but I am saying that in many cases, it is way too discouraging to people who, for whatever reason, can only eat like 1.3 or 1.4 grams per kilogram. So to directly answer the question, you can absolutely make fantastic gains if you're eating below this kind of uh, quote unquote optimal range of protein. Um, I would argue that you know, the, the RDA for protein is 0.8 grams per kilogram per day. That's not enough to optimize hypertrophy. And it's it's a pretty low protein intake. But if you start lifting weights, you've been eating that much protein and you continue eating that much protein, you will make good gains. You, you really will. They won't be fully optimal gains, but you will still make gains because lifting weights is what makes muscles grow. Eating protein just plays a permissive role in allowing that growth to occur. Um, now if you're lifting and you bump your protein from 0.8 all the way up to 1.2, now you're really cooking. And by most definitions, you're actually kind of on a high protein diet. I would say, Lauren, do you know if that technically fits? What's the literature standard for high protein diet? Uh, Is there a standard? I see. I I don't know that that there is a, a definition of a high protein diet in the literature but i i mean to to your point you know the the question asks what strategies can be used to drive growth and it's optimizing your your training program and continuing to progress in yep. your training program and and one of the uh the important things to remember when you're looking at, at these meta analyses is there, there wasn't any sort of inclusion criteria for, oh, this is an optimal training program. This is a progressive training program. It's like they were lifting weights, but um, had they, it, it, you know, if, to really answer this question, you would want to look at a large group of people who are all doing a, a similarly effective progressive resistance exercise program and consuming different protein intakes. Uh, so I think that that's a little bit lost when people yeah. interpret this literature. Yeah, yeah, it's it's really tricky. And I, I think these these meta regressions, I, I think, are fantastic. I mean, they, they are very, very useful. But at the same time, I think sometimes people, r- research is always a game of telephone, right? The, the study gets published. Sometimes the university puts out a press release. Uh, sometimes journalists cover it. Um, and then people talk about it on the internet. And by the time it gets to you, uh, you know, the, the kind of confidence in the findings uh, or the kind of definitive nature of the conclusions often gets amplified in that game of telephone. And so you might look at an original paper and people say, well, 
it looks like maybe there's an inflection point at 1.6, but it, it's a very imprecise estimate with a very wide confidence interval. And then by the time it gets, you know, kind of all the way through that game of telephone, it's like, if you're not eating 1.6 grams of protein per day, why are you even lifting? <laughs> you know, and it's like, it, there, there's so much miscommunication around that. So um, without question, you can make really fantastic hypertrophy progress by just lifting weights and eating some amount of protein. Now, going up in protein is going to be beneficial for trying to optimize rates of hypertrophy. But for most folks, really anywhere at or above 1.2 grams per kilogram per day plus lifting is often going to facilitate some really good gains because training is what drives hypertrophy. Eating adequate protein is what permits that hypertrophy to occur. It's what's providing the raw materials to facilitate that. Um, and Lauren, you're, you're the, I know I kind of took over this, uh, this question because I'm so passionate about it, but you're the expert in this area. So, um, I, I don't know if there's anything you want to add to that. I know we kind of teamed up on it, but the floor is yours if you'd like it. Yeah. Well, I would just add, and this sort of ties into another question that we got about plateaus in mm -hmm. your, in your training. Um, if, if you are reaching a, a plateau, adding more dietary protein is not going to help you um, overcome that plateau, for example. Um, and so while I'd say the general message about eating more protein is a good one because so much of the population isn't getting anywhere close to what we would say is sufficient, um, the, the, the idea that um, more and more and more is, is better um, or that you know, if if you're nowhere close to to that range, um, I even I, I often hear the one gram per pound. Um, yeah. That and that is not doable for a lot of people in the in the long term, and that's okay. Um, and so it kind of goes back to what we were discussing earlier about the the seasons of optimizing your your training and. For, for either for yourself or for a client and how we should be mindful of dialing in certain variables or being okay with being a bit more flexible. And that, I would say the same thing goes for your nutrition as well. Um, and it's it, it that's why the recommendation is a range because we don't we, we don't really have evidence to say, oh, you know, uh, up here, like your gains are way, way better down here, your gains are crap, right? Like, yeah. um, and and primarily, as you said, you know, resistance training is the the stimulus. Uh, and over time, that that will plateau, and that is a function of either anabolic resistance from aging or the anabolic pathways being you know less sensitive or or, or less receptive than they used to be. Um, that's a, a function of you know, muscle protein synthesis not chronically exceeding protein breakdown. That's a function of potentially, you know, your quote unquote genetic ceiling, none of which can be um, sort of engineered or um, tricked to, to change with a dietary intervention. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. All right. Um I think we probably have time for one more. Is there any particular question that you're enthusiastic about in the uh, in the outline here? Mm. 
There's one about evolution that kind of stumped me. I don't know how to answer it. One about evolution? Yeah. So there's one. Is the sum of all the achievable things by human physiology the byproduct of evolution? Or is there the capability to transform the body in a degree not predicted by anthropology or, or I guess evolution? That's a tricky one. It really got my gears turning. So I'll take a stab at it. I do want to put a big caveat here. So I am now working in a department of evolutionary anthropology. However, I have come to find uh, we do um, weekly research seminars on Friday mornings and colleagues in my department share their research, which is quite broad. Um, There's people that work with bonobos and chimps and lemurs and uh, people who do fossil research. It's really a mixed mixed group of, of researchers. I have come to find, unfortunately, that by merely accepting the job and walking in the building, I don't actually know more about evolution than I used to. So, you don't, you know, I, I, I have not become an evolution expert uh, by virtue of having this job for a few months. So big caveat there. You don't get to just walk in and absorb years of knowledge through osmosis. I know more than when I started, but but not not by a lot, to be totally honest. Um, but the thing about evolution is that evolution doesn't have a plan. Evolution doesn't have any objectives. There, there is no thought process or strategy behind evolution. And when we talk about evolution, um, we're talking about random stuff that changes and happens to work out. So in some cases, we will experience genetic mutations that may persist because they're just not terrible. You know, they, they don't really impact our ability to survive and reproduce. They're, they're just kind of a thing that happens. And for that reason, it, it's not something that's going to, you know, improve or limit our ability to survive to a reproductive age and, you know, reproduce and, and, and kind of uh, pass that mutation on down the line. So sometimes evolution gear, uh, leads us toward um, adaptations or, um, you know, gene mutations that they're just stuff that can happen and isn't disastrous. And that's okay. And, and sometimes we retain that stuff. Other times, you know, we will have uh, mutations that meaningfully um, yeah. meaningfully put us at an advantage in terms of the ability to, to survive and reproduce. And so those mutations have some some degree of um, evolutionary pressure that is uh, leading them to be meaningfully advantageous and actually kind of shaping the species in a way that's favorable for survival and successful reproduction. So all of that is to say, um, sometimes folks, when they ask questions about the relationship between evolution and physiology, there's this kind of underlying implication sometimes that there's, you know, for every uh, characteristic of a human being, we can go back in evolutionary history and find the point where that was an advantageous uh mutation or adaptation that happened kind of on purpose you know like like this sir this characteristic must have served a direct role for survivability or reproduction somewhere along the line um and that's not always the case sometimes sometimes stuff just happens sometimes we retain traits that aren't actually meaningful or useful to us they just kind of mattered at some point in our evolutionary history and they just don't anymore 
Um, so evolution is weird because sometimes we have these mutations that are game changers that completely fundamentally change the species and make us more fit for survival. And sometimes weird stuff just happens and it's not disastrous enough to matter. And we kind of retain it sometimes. So all of that is to say, um, is the sum of all achievable things by human physiology, the byproduct of evolution. I could see someone saying kind of because evolution is basically just the descriptive process of how our bodies made the way it is. So you, you could kind of say almost by default, um, for a body that was shaped by evolutionary pressures, technically evolution has dictated what we are and therefore what we're capable of. Um, so I could see someone answering that in a general sense and saying, okay, I, I think logically that makes sense. Um, at, at the same time, um, you know, the, the, the part of the question where, you know, can we use like evolutionary anth anthropology to, to predict all capabilities of human to that element, I would actually probably say no, because I think if you would have asked someone 150 years ago, like, will anyone ever be entertaining the idea of running a two hour, a sub two hour marathon? They probably would have said no. Evolution suggests that we're not capable of that. Um, but you know, stuff changes over time and it turns out we're flirting with it. We're getting pretty close. Like people are, people are getting there and I, and we'll get there, I think pretty shortly. So, um, I think one of the challenges with saying, you know, can we predict human capability from, you know, evolution, uh, in, in that framework, one of the challenges there is that we have an incomplete understanding of, um, our evolutionary history, and ultimately our genetic limits in a variety of, pur of pursuits. So I understand fully that that's a non-answer, but I just, uh, I basically just made the case for answering yes and made the case for answering no. And ultimately it, it's a fascinating question, but not one that I, I think I'd have to sit down with the person who asked it and ask some follow-up questions to figure out exactly what we're getting at here. But uh, nonetheless, I think uh, I, I, I applaud the question because I think it's really fascinating to think about how the human body's made, how we got here in the way we are, and ultimately what we're capable of. And I really like to think about what we will be capable of in 80 years. That seems impossible today uh, because, you know, so far that seems to be kind of the trajectory of human uh, physical capability and physiological capability is that we seem to, to continue doing some pretty amazing things. And uh, I'm interested to see if if our um, physical feats and prowess continue uh, in the athletic uh, venue, if they continue to improve at the rate they've been improving, because it's been uh, it's been a wild time uh, to see like how human speed and strength and athleticism has ha has really um, kind of elevated to new levels in the past uh, past several decades. Uh, Lauren, do you have any similar non-answers or a definitive answer you'd like to share? Hmm. Well, I actually say that when you're really pushing the boundaries um, of, you know, what's quote unquote achievable, that can be uh, in a can put you in a really maladaptive state. Um, and, and so that's I, I would say that evolution didn't uh, set us up to do those things where we're sort of pushing the boundaries there. And when you think about uh, really, really high-level athletes, uh, w whether they're in a state of low energy availability um, or they they're not in a in a good state of uh, potential reproductive functioning, that's 
well, not really what evolution probably quote unquote intended for us. Um, and there are certain things that that have evolved with us that are that are probably useless for I mean, think about your appendix, your tonsils. Probably um, be better off without the appendix, honestly. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and even certain things that, that physio- physiologically don't really make a lot of sense, like um, morning sickness during pregnancy. Uh, you know, what's the physiological purpose of that? Um, it, and it, so I think there's, I mean, there's, it's an interesting question, I agree, because there's so much that we don't understand. But the, the concept of what is achievable is a, a bit it's it's that that in my mind goes to the extremes like what can we push the human body to accomplish if we work really hard to do this this or that and whereas the the majority of the population certainly wouldn't be able to uh, um perform that that particular feat so i think probably it, it's more a question of how how can we push the bounds of what we were perhaps um, evolutionarily set up to do? Yeah. At, versus, you know, what what is a uh, like a day to day athletic pursuit? Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's there's definitely a lot of ways you could look at this question because you could say, you know does evolution set the stage and kind of set the limits for human capability? But you could also look at it and say, when we try to push the limits of human capability, is that <clears throat> is that necessarily compatible with, you know, the general concept that we, is it compatible with what we have allegedly evolved to be made for? <laughs> you know, um, and again, I, I don't, I don't love using that language because it, it again, tends to imply that evolution is some kind of plan. Like it was right. supposed to happen a certain way. Um, and, and that is kind of like, I, I think in the broadest sense, like I said initially, like you could argue in just the the most vague terms that like, well, yeah, like if we could teach a gorilla to deadlift, um, he's going to deadlift more than me, right? <laughs> because evolution has decided that's a skill set that he has and I don't. Um not necessarily on purpose, but we went different paths in our development and gorillas are very strong. Um, now if a gorilla and I wanted to do a 10 mile race, I will win. Um, you know, humans, we're, we're pretty good at long distance running and we're quite an outlier in terms of our ability to, uh, you know, the fact that we can sweat as much as we do, we're very weird. We're a sweaty species. Um, just absolutely an outlier in terms of disgusting sweatiness. But it makes us very well suited for endurance uh, activities, especially in the heat. Um, So yeah, if you want me and a gorilla to do a 10-mile race out in a 100-degree day, I'm going to win. And so I I think, you know, you could argue, yeah, you know, evolution is the process by which uh, these species develop their traits, and those traits ultimately set some kind of basement and ceiling on capability. But uh, all that is say, I, I don't think I have a clear answer to this question without like 30 follow-ups of, of what we're really trying to get at. But I do think it's a good question and it's interesting to think about. And I think folks who are into fitness, I think all of us, well, I don't want to be too um, definitive there. 
many folks who are into fitness, we have this kind of underlying interest. We're intrigued by human physiology, the human body, what it's capable of, how it came to be built the way that it is. And uh, I, th I think that's one of the most enjoyable things about my uh, recent experience tiptoeing uh, into the field of evolutionary anthropology is to see um, just taking it back many, many, many steps and looking at it from a totally different way, you know, because all of my education was kind of looking at the human body from more of a clinician's perspective, right? So it's like exercise science as a pre-med, pre-physical therapy clinical degree. So not really worrying about how we got here or, or why or what evolutionary pressure shaped that trajectory, really just looking at how ought the human body work and what are states of pathology that can be addressed. Um, so it is kind of fun to take it back several steps and say, what about other um, members of, you know, what about the non-sapien members of the homo genus and, and kind of how did those traits vary and, and when did certain traits kind of pop up along the, the lineage of primate evolution? It's it's really fascinating to see how primates changed and met all these different demands in these different uh, extreme circumstances. Um, human body. There would wild. also be a, a mistake to ignore the fact that there's a, a whole lot of cultural and societal and psychological and behavior change elements with with humans that yeah. are are certainly going to factor in. Uh, you know, it if we were just physiological machines that you can push the button and go it would be very very different but there it, you know it's uh we're a very complicated species <laughs> yeah i mean I, I i don't uh i don't have the record books in front of me but I, I do remember hearing that you know everyone said breaking the four minute mile was like never gonna happen totally impossible then one person did it and then like several people did it um mm -hmm. in, in a relatively short span of time um, so, so it is kind of interesting that, you know, once something has been done, I think as humans, we go, okay, yeah, I, I think I can do it now. <laughs> and then, then more people do it, you know? Um, and it's not quite that simple, but you're right. I mean, the limits that we have on, um, our boundaries, it, it's not just pure physiology dictated by evolutionary pressures. There, there's a lot more that goes into it. There's psychology and frankly, the opportunity, right? I mean, what, believe it or not. Uh, what, what, it's 2023, 10 years ago, only 10 years ago, if you walked into a USAPL powerlifting meet and you weighed 180 pounds and you squatted 500 pounds, people would look at you and say, that is a very good job. You are a very strong person. 500 pounds at 180 looks a lot different in powerlifting right now. I mean, we're, we're seeing people absolutely, I mean, the record books have been fundamentally restructured since 10 years ago in powerlifting because powerlifting has grown, more people have access to the sport, more people are interested in trying to push those limits. And we're starting to actually say, oh, wow, what, what we thought was kind of pushing capability back then was not close to pushing capability um, because there's the interest, the optimization of training and the opportunity to actually pursue those goals in a very focused manner. So performance is wild. And, and that's why people love sports. That That is a, a almost universal truth. Humans love sport. Fitness people love the human body. It, it's a fascinating machine. And that's why Lauren, people like you and me will probably spend the next uh, rest of our lives finding out more about it because it's fun. For sure. All right. We should probably wrap it up, huh? 
We should, yeah. Um, once again, I want to thank everyone for joining us um, and for um, allowing me to speculate recklessly about some of those questions tonight. And I usually like to keep it rooted in the literature, but hey, sometimes people ask interesting questions and I just want to chat about them and think through them live in front of a viewing audience. Uh, once again, everyone, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, like I said, if you want to support the show, many ways to do it. Like, rate, subscribe, review, tell a friend, send them a link, ask us a question. We really appreciate your support. And if you really love the show and you want to take your support to the next level, you can subscribe to the Mass Research Review. We put out a new issue every single month, the first of the month, reviewing in-depth, the most important and most useful research happening in exercise and nutrition. We make it all very, very approachable, very practical things that you can apply in your training, in your client's training, right after you read the article, put it right into practice. So thanks so much. Uh, I will be back with another episode in exactly one week. I do not know who my guest host, my co-host is going to be, but it will be somebody and it will be someone who is uh, one of my esteemed colleagues that uh, co-authors the Mass Research Review. Lauren, thank you so much. You did a fantastic job. You carried the show. Uh, you were the star of the show. I appreciate your time, and I can't wait to have you back in the future. Uh, everyone have a fantastic night, and we will be back in one week.